Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. I'm Pastor Brian, joined once again by Pastor Ross Anderson. Ross, it's Tuesday, which means today we're going to talk some more systematic theology, and we're in week number seven, and it's it's a good thing that we're following up on the bad news from last week, humanity. Today we're going to talk about the solution that the Bible tells us, that the Bible gives us about the sin problem. And the word for this is kind of a fancy word, kind of a theological word. The word for this is atonement, and it's not a word that we use in our everyday language. Yeah, not very often. You, you do sometimes talk about someone atoning for some mistake or something like that. Um, the word in English reflects... In, biblically, there's more than one biblical word that are wrapped up in this. There's a key word that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but but in English, it's the idea of being at one with somebody else. And so it's the idea of um, being reconciled or bringing two parties together. And so the, the basic idea is that human beings who, as we saw in the last topic, are estranged and alienated from God by sin can be reconciled to God, brought together with God, and the means of the atonement is through the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, so when we talk about atonement, we're naturally going to be talking about you know, the passion of the Christ. We're going to be talking about his death and his, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. But we're also going to be talking today about some of the problems, theologically, some of the problems that the atonement addresses. And so this is going to get a little heady. This conversation will be, I guess, a little bit heady for folks, but I think it's still a conversation worth having because the atonement is, it's just so important to understand. And and even some cults deal with the atonement in a way that's not completely biblical. Maybe we'll have some time to get to that a little bit so that we can contrast um, what's a biblical way to think about the atonement. But let's start with the first problem that's addressed by the atonement, and it's this idea of of sacri- this sacrifice, the sacrificial atonement of Jesus. Yeah, the, the, idea, the idea of sacrifice is just found throughout the whole Bible, and it's really found quite clearly in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And the Old Testament sacrificial system is built on the assumption that um, when a person sins, then there's a, they deserve death as a result, that somehow our sin against God... Um, we've broken his law, so it did just, there's some kind of penalty for sin, and that penalty involves the taking of or the giving of a life. And so in the Old Testament sacrificial system, um, sin required some kind of death to occur. And that, and that Old Testament system prefigures, it looks forward to, the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Yeah, so when a modern reader reads the Old Testament, that's probably one of the weirder parts of the Old Testament is to look at this sacrificial system, and a, a, certainly a non-Christian, even a Christian might read that and say, I don't understand, why, did G, why, did, why, was Jesus, why was God so mean to animals? Why was he so mean to lambs? Well, it, it doesn't seem to compute to the modern mind, even though for an ancient mind, it completely made sense, not just to the Jewish people, but even just to people in other religions. Right. In, in, the, in the pre-modern world, uh, the pre-secular world, everywhere you go around the world, in every culture, there's some sense that sacrifices needs to be made, either to um, 
to win the favor of the gods or to pay for the sins of people or the nation, whatever it is. So that's not that foreign to most of humanity through time. It's a little more foreign in our culture today, although we all have this sense that when justice is wronged or someone's wrong, there's, there's got to be a retribution, there's got to be some price that's paid um, um, for that. And so in the Old Testament system, that, pr- that price was that an animal is killed in the place of the sinner. The sinner uh, it identifies with the animal, puts his hands on the animal's head to say it's sort of a way of saying this animal is representing me, and then the animal um, is killed to, to cover over, at least temporarily till the next time, to cover over um, sin, and that's all described in, in a lot in the book of Leviticus and other places as well. Yeah, and so while a modern reader might look at that and say, well, this shows how mean God is, actually the opposite is true. Yeah, exactly. Because really what it's doing is it's showing how gracious God is, because God could demand the life of the sinner, the human being, but he, in essence, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, he's saying, he, it's this, one of his early acts of grace. He said, I'm going, to, I'm going to accept the lifeblood of this lamb or this goat in place of the people. Yeah, and I think part of our modern reaction against that, to some extent, is that we don't have a very high idea of God's righteousness, justice, and holiness that we think God is just kind of like, oh, take it or leave it, sin, oh, kind of a hassle, or whatever. But when we realize how holy and perfect God is, that, that an offense against him is a serious thing. Uh, we've lost that sense in our culture today. And so this is a, this is a reflection of God's goodness when really he could, he, he could have demanded that we pay the price for offending him, the full price ourselves, but he made a way in the Old Testament system, and of course that all lead, uh, it, it points forward to the atonement that Jesus made. His, he made. He approached God as the high priest, but he offered himself as the sacrifice. He's both the high priest and the sacrifice for a sacrifice that pays for our sin and takes our place, but it doesn't have to be made over and over and over and over again. And that's what Hebrews says in the New Testament. It says that he died once for all. Mm-hmm. So that's why we as Christians don't still have the old the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's why you don't go to church on Sunday and somebody's some you know a priest or pastor is up there sacrificing a, a bull on the altar. It's because Jesus took care of it. That sin problem that somebody had to die for our sin, and so so the first concept of the atonement deals with sacrifice but that's not all that's not all that the, there's more there's more involved in the biblical idea of atonement the second issue and it's related but it's different the second issue is that god's wrath had to be appeased that god that that we've offended a holy god and his wrath needs to be appeased and there's a fancy um theological word for this the word is propitiation yeah propitiation Um, is probably not a very common word to most of our listeners unless they're a regular reader of the King James Version of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Because the King James Version, take there's this word in in Greek that propitiation is a pretty good translation because we think about when things are favorable, we say that maybe they're propitious. Um, 
that nobody uses that word either. So probably a bad illustration. <laughs> you probably do, well, Ross. I'm sure. Yeah. Anyway, the idea of propitiation or of something propitious is like the the, the Greek word underlying that is, um, you know, to to take a situation and turn it from a bad situation into a good situation. And you look at an, a person, it means that um, that God God's attitude toward the sinner is changed from wrath to favor. Now, propitiation, then, there's a gift that's offered to, I guess, placate or appease the wrath of God. Now, there's there's some things that could go wrong in terms of how we think of it, some wrong thinking that we could slip into on this, but that's the core idea, that God's wrath against sin is a real thing, it's a serious thing, and um, it's averted by the sacrifice that Jesus made. Yeah, and you define the wrath of God as his settled animosity towards sin. And I like that because, you know, when Jesus went to the cross, <clears throat> God <clears throat> God didn't just say, oh, it's no big deal. I hereby, I hereby cancel my wrath. I'm just, I'm not going to spend my wrath on, any, on anyone or anything. I love you. I forgive you. I just cancel my wrath. That's not actually what God the Father did. God, God spent his wrath. And this is, when I first kind of wrapped my mind around this, this was a powerful concept to me. God spent his wrath on Jesus. The, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God at the cross. God didn't just cancel his wrath. Right. And I think that the challenge is we think about wrath, we think about some grumpy, irascible old man who's just ticked off about stuff, you know? No, it's not, it's not like, oh, we got a f- you, maybe you have that uncle or that grandparent, or maybe you're somebody in your family, you think, oh, man, here we go, we've got to walk on eggshells around them, and we got to come in and, you know, give some compliment or bring a gift so that so-and-so's not, like, just ticked off at us all the time. But, but that's, that's a disservice to the nature of God, because God's wrath is against sin, and and we, if we've ever felt this sense of like that, that sin or somebody has done something to somebody and it's wrong and it makes you mad to see someone abuse that other person or whatever, that's a, a hint of it. So wrath against sin is a good thing. God ought to be wrathful about sin. Mm-hmm. But the fact, the problem is we're all sinners. And so it's not like, oh, that he, could be, he should be mad at that other person. You know, he should have wrath against us. It's not unreasonable wrath. It's not just a character default, a character fault, but but God's wrath actually needs to be um, a- answered. And so the gift that Jesus gives, then you know, so, here, so here's the thing. It's not like it's not like Jesus is the nice guy, God, and God the Father is the mean God. Mm. But but. You know, God's wrath against sin. Jesus has the same attitude towards sin the Father does. Right. And they're one. So the thing is that, that, is that God himself is the one who provides the, the gift. God himself is the one who provides the answer. So it's not like we have to figure out, oh, how, you know, how to, how to you know, get on the good side of this mean relative. No, God is the one who says, I want relationship with you. So I'm going to provide a way for my settled animosity against sin to be um, answered appropriately and through this sacrifice. So again, it's God's grace. I mean, we, we see this over and over again. It's God's grace, that God's gift to us. The atonement is so much about God's gift to us. The one way to look at the atonement is it's bloody, 
and mean and sad, and and that's true. For Jesus, it was. Jesus, it cost him his life. But for us as human beings, the more we understand the idea of the atonement, the more we can really worship God in the fullness of his goodness toward us. And if you don't understand the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God towards sin, then you really, I, I think you can't really fully understand what Jesus did for us. Yeah, that's a great point. And by the way, if you're reading in modern language uh, Bible translations and you come across the word atonement in the New Testament, it's pretty good chance that it's translating this word uh, propitiation. Mm-hmm. That was propitiation in the older translations. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a third sort of aspect to the atonement, and this is related to the idea that we're in bondage to sin and, and that we're in bondage to the kingdom of Satan because of, because of our sinful nature and our fallen nature. And so this concept can be wrapped under the word redemption. So the atonement is related to sacrifice, it's related to propitiation, but it's also, thirdly, related to redemption. Yeah, and redemption is probably not a word that we use a lot either. If you think about the idea of redeeming something means to, means to buy something out of. You know, it's like to, to win it back or to buy it back. Um, a, another word that the Bible uses is the word ransom. That's a similar, the same concept. It's about, it's about setting someone free by paying a price. Okay, so, you know, and, and the Bible talks about Colossians 1, he's purchased our freedom from the kingdom of darkness. Um, he's bought, God bought our freedom from sin, from the empty way of life that we used to, to live, all of this through the sacrifice that Jesus made. So it's not just the, um, the wrath of God or paying for, for sin, but it's also the payment that's made by Jesus to set us free from these negative powers that hold us in bondage. And so again, is this true for everybody? Is this, I guess my, maybe my, at this point I might, I'm, I'm thinking about someone who's being, who's being exposed to these words for the first time and they, they probably just think, what, who cares? These are all just theological words and concepts. Is it really, does it really matter to my life? Do I really need to take notes on this one? Is it that, why does this matter that we're looking at all these different facets of the idea of the atonement? How would you answer that in in terms of this idea of redemption? Yeah, there's two sides of that. It matters in two ways. It matters eternally. Okay, so, you know, you know, I know a lot of people don't think there's anything after this life. But if there is something after this life and we're answerable to God, then, then we're going to have to stand before God and, and give an account. Um, that, or, or what's our eternal destiny? If we're, if we're never set free from the kingdom of darkness, that's our eternal destiny. But it matters in this life as well, because there, there's this... You know, so, for example, in 1 Peter 1, it says that Christ has redeemed us from the empty way of life that our ancestors lived. That the, the, all the human people before us, from from the futility, from you know, where is life going? If anybody's ever had the question, is my life meaningful? Does my life count for anything? Is it? Am I just going to live and die and be forgotten, and that's the end of it? Then he says, no. He's paid the price to redeem us from that way of life into a new kind of life, into a new purpose, into a relationship with Him that changes life here and now, as well as in eternity. Okay, so that's the third aspect to the atonement, and here's the fourth one. The other problem that the atonement 
is solving is more of a relational problem, that we have a relational problem with God, that we've been set, our sin separates us relationally from God. You know, we saw this last week that Adam and Eve were walking with God in the garden in chapters one and two, and then in chapter three, all of a sudden sin enters the world and they're no longer just walking with God in the garden. They're actually expelled from the garden mm-hmm. and this relationship with God has been interrupted. And so the word that describes this is the word reconciliation. Yeah, and in the, and in the New Testament, reconciliation is always connected with this atonement sacrifice that Christ died on the cross, and, and one of the results of that is it ends the enmity that we have with God and brings us into peace with God. And so um, we have this. We can have this relationship with God. Now, again, to your earlier point, a lot of people don't feel like they're not in a relationship with God, or feel like they want about a relationship with God, or maybe they're religious people who feel like, oh, I've got a relationship with God that doesn't really require Jesus necessarily. It requires my religious system. But ultimately, ultimately, the, the common human experience is you. You see this in literature and. And everywhere you look, the common human experience is a sense of estrangement from God. Now, a person might not recognize it as God, but a sense of estrangement from purpose, estrangement from the universe, that I feel I'm alone in the universe, that I don't really know what my purpose is, I don't really know my origin or my destiny. And all those are symptoms of, of the estrangement that we all experience. The Bible's point is that the death of Christ then brings us into this intimate relationship with God where we can know him and even uh, recalled even his called his friends in Romans chapter 5. Okay, so these these four aspects then I think we can we can we need to add one more important word to this idea of atonement and maybe people would see this if they're reading a a theology book and they're they're studying this doctrinally or they're going to seminary to study this and it would be this this fancy word, substitutionary atonement. Mm-hmm. So when we say substitutionary atonement, what do we mean by that? Yeah, it simply means that the whole atonement, the whole work of Jesus um, to bring us to be right with God, it all involves, he, he, he did it on our behalf, he did it for us, but beyond that, he did it in our place. That uh, when he went to the cross, that we deserve to be on the cross, and he bore our sins in our place uh, when, when he went there. And so um, all, the, all those previous aspects that we talked about, setting aside God's wrath and removing the cause of enmity and, and setting us free from sin and darkness and so forth, all of those are a result of Jesus acting in our place to stand before God as our representative and really our substitute, just like the Old Testament animal stood in as a substitute for the person who brought the animal as an offering, Jesus stands in as a substitute for us. Okay, so that that helps us to understand biblically the concept of the atonement, and I think it's important for us now at this point to talk about um, one particular point of controversy around the idea of atonement, because historically some christians as we as we wrap our mind around this idea some christians have said okay this atonement the work that jesus did in our place the substitutionary penal atonement jesus some people would say that jesus did it for 
everyone, every human being. And other Christians would say, no, he only did it for the elect. So what's that debate about, and what are the sides of that debate? Yeah, when we talk about the elect or talk about election, that it seems like a theological term, but really that is one that's used in ordinary life because we elect a president, we elect representative. That just means choose. When we elect somebody, we chose them. Okay, so, so basically it's just election is about God's choice. So did Jesus die for everybody, every human being, or did he die only for those who God had previously chosen? And so that, that's the challenge, and there's two large perspectives on it. There's a lot of variations within these two schools of thought. There's some people who've tried to mediate between the two, but it, it pretty much boils down to two sets of presuppositions and two large sets of kind of interpretive frameworks uh, for understanding what the Bible says, because both of them will, will make their appeal based on the Bible. There's a the group that's called, um, often called Calvinists, or more commonly in our culture today, they're called Reformed, and then there's the group that are have that have been called Arminian. Now, Calvin and Arminius were two of the prominent spokespersons of these in the early history of Protestant Christianity, and so that's why we get those names. Okay, so let's talk. Up, let's start with the Calvinist position. And and again, for those of you listening, if you're new to this, I, Ross, I remember this is one of those topics. We have topics, by the way, on this at PursueGod.org if you want to take a deep, deeper dive on this. But whenever I've done this, these topics on Calvinism versus Arminianism with men's groups, um, it's always fun to see their reaction because if you grew up not really understanding these words chances are good that you're not a Calvinist, right? Would you agree with that? Because what I've found is most people who are Calvinists have studied it and know it, and it's taught very clearly in their Reformed church. But most, most people who don't really know these words, maybe they've heard of these words before, they probably grew up in a church where this wasn't emphasized. Right. And so you're probably going to have an immediate reaction to the idea of Calvinism. And I would just warn people against that. I would just say, look, just hear it out. Because it's not like anybody, the Calvinist theologians aren't trying to paint a picture of God that's not biblical. They just, when they read scripture and wrestle with these things, they come, they land on the Calvinist side of things, and, mm-hmm. and the Arminians land on another side of things. So right. I just want to warn everybody about that. Right, exactly. And, it, and, and, you know, both positions have something to say, and, and the both positions have been around as long as they have, because they can make a, a fair claim to being biblical. Now, there's certain areas where prob- they both probably can't be right, um, and you'd have to decide how you're going to interpret the Scripture in light of the bigger picture and so forth, um, but, but it's fair to say that you know, the certain presuppositions uh, are involved in each group, and um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a good, it's a fair topic to grapple with, because it does ask important questions about the nature of God, about the nature of human beings, and, and what it means to, to um, have the atonement of Jesus applied in your life. And, and the reason we're talking about this in the atonement episode is because uh, five-point Calvinist, maybe you've heard of this, is, is this famous uh, simple acronym for a five-point Calvinist. It's called TULIP, 
And the L in TULIP stands for limited atonement. So spoiler alert, what, what a five-point Calvinist believe is that, that the atonement of Christ was limited, that Jesus didn't actually atone for the sins of the whole world, but only for the sins of the elect. Yeah, and I, I've, I've seen uh, some Calvinists push back and uh, try to clarify that. They would prefer to call it definite atonement, mm. because the Arminian idea of atonement is limited too. The atonement only actually applies to people who actually um, receive Christ. Mm-hmm. So, they're, so they're not, no, neither party is universalistic. Right. To say the atonement of Jesus guarantees salvation for everybody, whether they trust in Jesus or follow him or not. That's the ultimate unlimited atonement. Mm-hmm. So it's limited in one way or the other, but in what way? So the Calvinist position begins with the idea that every human being is born spiritually dead because of sin. We talked about this last week, and that that nature is hostile to God, and that it means that we are, this is kind of the, this is the point, we, that humans are totally unable to come to God. So God has to make that person spiritually, spiritually alive before he or she can ever even respond to the gospel offer. And basically the Calvinist said, says that, so the elect are given the ability to do that, to respond to the grace of God. In fact, it's irresistible grace. They, right. if, if you're elect, you will respond to the effective right. calling. And so, so it's more, it's not actually they're given the ability to respond to the grace. They're actually made alive, mm. spiritually alive. Right, right. So Arminians agree on that basic human you know, condition. But the, the answer, the provision that God makes is different between the two. The provision that God makes in the Calvinist mind is that God takes someone who is dead and he makes them alive. So that the idea of regeneration in the Calvinist mind comes before conversion, because, because conversion would be impossible without regeneration. Mm-hmm. Now, the Arminian who sees the same problem in human nature and the same, uh, the same human condition defined in Scripture would say, no, that's not the remedy that God has in mind. God's remedy is he provides what they call prevenient grace. It's a blanket kind of grace that he, that he pours out on all of humanity that gives human beings, uh, it overcomes that inherent human ability. It doesn't make a person alive, but it allows a person, a person to be illuminated, to understand the truth, or their heart to be sort of uh, brought into this halfway state or enough uh, uh, to, so that the person can legitimately choose, even though they're dead in sin, they can, and, and they can still choose to make a choice for or against Christ. So both have a, a remedy to human, the human sin and depravity. The remedies are rather different. But an Arminian, or an Arminian's trying to make sure that they're faithful to Scripture that says we can't save ourselves. And so... Right. What an Arminian would say is it's still a gift of God. God still gives me the ability through prevenient grace. He gives me the ability to make a free choice to respond to his gospel call, Mm -hmm. whereas a Calvinist, many Calvinists would argue, well, then that's a work. That that's a sen- that's not really God's. God didn't really fully do the work. Some of it was up to you, your choice, your response, right. and so that's the problem that a Calvinist would have with that. Yeah, the Calvinist sees it like this. Um, to the best that I, I'm not 100% Calvinist, but I I try to my best to understand both these perspectives. Um, the Calvinist sees it like this: Why do some people 
choose to uh, follow Jesus and some do not. Well, what is it? Well, the Calvinist answer is because God made them alive. God chose them and made them alive. And, and he didn't choose and make alive others. Whatever re reason God, we don't know what God's reasons for uh, choosing some and not others are, are all about. So the Calvinist says, well, that's the reason that makes sense to me. If I'm asking the question, why do some choose to follow Jesus and some do not, if that's not the answer, then what is the answer? And it has to be, the Calvinists say, it has to be something within that person. Somehow they were smarter, they understood better, they were somehow inclined to the gospel somehow. So it, it boils down somehow to some trait or quality or attitude somehow inherent in the person, and then that then that becomes it becomes then salvation somehow that person has contributed to their salvation. So a legitimate question that a Calvinist would ask an Arminian then is okay, how do you explain all the passages in Scripture that talk about God the elect mm -hmm. using language like that? How do you explain that? How do you explain the scripture that talks about God predestining those who would believe? Even Jesus mm -hmm. said, Those whom God has uh, has appointed to me, whatever translation you have, will come to me, mm -hmm. right? So that yeah. a Calvinist would say, how would you explain that? And what would an Arminian respond to that? Well, I, I, the Arminian would define the basis of election and predestination a little differently than the Calvinist would. The Arminian, by the way, would have their own questions for the Calvinist. Right, exactly. Like, like how would you explain the, the passages in First Timothy and Second Peter, so forth, that say that God desires everyone to be saved. Right. Because that seems to mean that, in the Calvinist perspective, it seems to be that God only desires the elect to be saved. Because otherwise, then he didn't get his desire. That's and right. And that diminishes the sovereignty of God. That's my understanding, yeah. is, is Calvinists are trying to really uphold the sovereignty of God, and and. Arminians are trying to up, uphold maybe the, I don't know, the kindness of God or the free will of man, depending on how you look yeah, at it. Yeah, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, so um, so with respect to the question about, you know, who does God, how does, what, the response to the, the question that shows, shows God choosing or predestining, uh, Arminians would go to Romans chapter 8, where it says, those he called, he also predestined, those he predestined, he foreknew. And so the typical approach is that the Calvinists would say God chose on the basis of his own will, his purpose, for whatever reason. And then they are, but the Arminian would say God chose those people, sure, before the foundation of the earth, as Ephesians 1 says. But he chose them on the basis of his foreknowledge. In other words, God knew in advance God, his knowledge is infinite, and he's eternal, so he's outside of time. And so God knew in advance that you would respond to the gospel call by trusting in Jesus, and so then God says, okay, that, I'll choose that one. You know, So it's on the basis of his sovereign will, or it's on the basis of his foreknowledge mm. between the two groups. So how does all of this then, let's kind, of, let's kind of bring it all back to the topic at hand, how does this all relate to the atonement then? So how does, why are we talking about Calvinism and Arminianism in an episode on the atonement of Jesus? Yeah, because all of these questions have to do with, you know, how the atonement is applied in the individual believer's life. And ultimately, um, you know, I can see the point of both. I could see the strength of arguments. I'm, 
I, I, I think there's a, some of the Calvinist arguments are very strong biblically. I think some of the Calvinist response to the Arminian arguments leaves me a little bit like unconvinced. Um, but ultimately, what, what I, I see both groups generally agree on everything that we said in the first part of this broadcast. Mm. Both groups agree on the sacrifice of Jesus, that he made propitiation against the wrath of God, that he reconciled us to God, that he redeemed us from, you know, uh, that he acts as our substitute. And so in terms of the way the gospel is actually proclaimed, in terms of how it's actually lived and articulated and so forth, there's very little difference in my experience between, you know, Arminians and Calvinists. Maybe there's a lot of some more difference at the extremes of those positions. Um, but in terms of actually experiencing the atonement for me personally as a believer and all that Jesus did for me, um, you know, th there's, there's debates about how it actually works, but I don't think those debates really necessarily affect a whole lot about how we share the gospel and what the gospel actually is. What is the good news? The good news is not um, election. The good news is what Jesus did, what God did through Jesus Christ to remedy the, the human problem of sin. And the atonement, even, even though you don't, certainly, I don't think I've ever used, I, I think I've rarely used the word atonement when I've yeah. shared the gospel with people, yeah. but, but, I've, but understanding the concepts of atonement are important. You know, what I would share with somebody, the way it would come across when I'm sharing the gospel, or maybe the way it comes across when you read the book of Acts when, when the early disciples were sharing the gospel. They didn't always use, maybe, maybe later in some of the writings, they would use propitiation or atonement. Right, but, but never, yeah, in fact, the propitiation, those, those don't show up by and large in the, in the gospels and the Acts. Yeah. It's Paul taking a word to use to explain a certain thing. That's right, so I'm glad clear, we're... you know. Yeah, and I'm glad we're going back to kind of root this idea back, you know, there's to sort of map it out in the early church in the book of Acts, and you see those sermons, the first sermon that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, and then in Acts chapter 10 later he preaches. He doesn't use these fancy words, even though in, in his writings in First Peter, I think he even uses the word propitiation or atonement. But in his sermons he didn't use it, he didn't need right. to, because right. he understood just very simply. He said, Jesus died for your sins. Right, and that's the idea. That's yeah. the, in a nutshell, that's the good news. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about. There's so much more to understand about that as we dig in. But the bottom line is, Jesus died f for your sins to set you free. Right, and I think I think both sides of the debate um, will share the gospel in much the same way. The the call of the gospel, the invitation of the gospel, and that's partly because we have our, how everyone really shares. The message, the good news, is really based a lot on the model that we see of the apostles in the book of Acts and Jesus in the Gospels, and so it's shaped more by those experiences than it is by some underlying um, theological construct. So Peter's, Peter says, and all the apostles, whether they were Arminians or Calvinistic in their thinking, you know, I don't really know that you can't really kind of superimpose that structure backwards upon them, but the fact is that I'm trying to get at is that they both proclaimed Jesus and invited people to make a, a personal, responsible decision to follow him. 
the question that the underlying theological question is why why did they make that decision were they called to it were they uh did they choose it um because of god's prevenient grace whatever but the point is the message was the same and and it shapes our message today yeah and really that's maybe that's a good way to end this episode that is our message and maybe you're listening today and you're not sure if you're a christian you're listening to this or you stumbled upon this you're listening and you said, you know, I, this is interesting. I've never really thought about my sin problem, and I've never really thought about the fact that Jesus um, died to, to sort, of, sort of open up the way for me to be at one with God, that he, he died in my place sacrificially, that he died to reconcile me with God, that he, he died as a substitute to appease the wrath of God on my behalf, Maybe you're listening to this saying, I want to be reconciled to God. I want to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I invite you to do that even today. Romans 10, 9, it says that, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then you'll be saved. And I invite you to do that even today. If you're not yet a believer, if you're not sure where you stand, the Bible says that his arms are open wide and he invites all of us to accept the good news of the gospel, which really at the, at the end of the day is what the atonement is all about. So if you want to talk more about this topic with a family, with your small group, with your mentor, I encourage you to check it out on our resource page at pursuegod.org forward slash sistheo. That's short for systematic theology. This was lesson number seven. And then make sure to join us next Tuesday. We're going to dive into lesson eight.